Today's Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 6. Exodus chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 6. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dropped it with bitumen and peach. She put the child in it and placed it among the weeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Zara came down to bath at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the weeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, There's one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to, to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh said, and and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child mom. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I threw him out of water. One day when Moses has grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their, on their barrens, and he saw an Egyptian, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he stuck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, the two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to, to the man in the wall, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came in through water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father's rural, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even threw water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to bury the man, and gave Moses, and gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called he called his name Gishom, for he said, "I have been a sojourner in a foreign land." During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel mourned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their crying, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, 
with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of God, the angel of, of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see great sight, why the bush is not burning. When the Lord saw that he turned, he turned aside to see, God called him out to the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sentence off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the, God of your, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses his, hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of God. Ponang, thank you for that reading. And uh, Femi, thank you so much for those prayers earlier. Uh, Bonang and Femi represent one of our NerdFate life groups. And so if you're in the area and uh, you're looking for a life group, Femi's around. You can chat to him afterwards. Let me uh, open in a word of prayer and then we'll get stuck in. Father, as Jeremy was reflecting earlier, we acknowledge that uh, we are absolutely powerless apart from you. Apart from you, we want to build a house, but we labor in vain. Father, we so desperately um, need your presence here this morning through the work of your precious Son and in the power of your Spirit. Meet with us, we pray, in his name. Amen. Let me start by asking you an impossible question to answer. Here's the question. If anyone uh, gets this right, free cappuccinos for a year. David is paying. Okay, here we go. Here's the question. What do Harriet Tubman and Peter Kuhn have in common? Harriet Tubman, Peter Kuhn. I don't like that mumbling. That, that suggests to me that someone might be getting a year's supply of free cappuccinos. We'll see. Uh, you remember Harriet Tubman from uh, Reggie's sermon just a few weeks ago? You remember uh, he spoke about Harriet Tubman? Uh, just to refresh your memories, give you a clue. She was an African-American woman who died in 1913. Peter Kuhn was an Afrikaans boy who died in 1985. What do they have in common? I'll color it in a bit more. Again, you'll remember from Reggie's sermon, 1849, Tubman escaped from slavery in Maryland. Uh, she was enslaved on a plantation in Maryland. She walked to Pennsylvania. That's 150 kilometers, five days minimum walking. This is how she felt when she arrived in freedom. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. 
the sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Heaven on earth didn't last very long because very soon she remembered the people back home. And I quote again, I was a stranger in a strange land. My father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my friends were in Maryland. I was free, but they should be free. So she went back into the slave territories 13 times over the next 10 years, and she rescued 70 of her family and her friends, took them to freedom. In 1985, I actually remember this. Uh, it had a profound impact on me. It sort of kind of burnt into my memory. I remember it on the news. 1985, Peter Kuhn was a 17-year-old schoolboy on a bus packed with children. The brakes failed. The bus went headlong into the West Dean Dam. There were 76 children on that bus. 76 children were drowning. But somehow, Peter Kuhn managed to escape. You can imagine when he got to the surface, he just gasped for breath. You probably can't imagine what happened next. He went straight back down under the water, straight back down into the bus, grabbed hold of one of his schoolmates, took them to the surface. He did that again and again and again. Five times he went back down under the water, into the bus, grabbed hold of one of his schoolmates, took them to the surface. He went down a sixth time, but he never surfaced. What do Harriet Tubman and Peter Kuhn have in common? We'll come back to that. Because we want to ask another question. In Exodus chapter 2 and 3, there are four snapshots of the life of Moses. Four snapshots. So there are three scenes taking us through his early life and then one scene from later on in life. Our question is this, what do those four scenes have in common? What I want to show you is that each one is essentially telling the same story, making the same point in, in a slightly different way. But it's the same point. And the point is this, Moses prefigures Israel. Moses is Israel in miniature. Moses walks Israel's journey before her. Let me show you what I mean. So we start with scene one. It's the birth narrative, Exodus chapter two, one to six. Now, if you know something about Exodus and you know something about what's going to happen in the life of Israel, um, then I want you to listen to this and tell me if you hear anything familiar. As we read the birth narrative, listen to it carefully and think Israel. Here we go. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Jump ahead to verse 10. And when the child grew older, Moses' mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. What did you hear? Maybe you heard one or two of these echoes. Verse 3, Moses finds refuge in the water amongst the reeds. Later on, Israel will find refuge in the waters of the Red Sea, otherwise known as the Sea of Reeds. Verse 4, Miriam is a key witness to Moses' salvation. Later on, Miriam is a key witness to Israel's salvation. After the Red Sea crossing, she leads Israel in song. Verse 6, Pharaoh's daughter hears the cries of Moses and has compassion on him. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue, came, uh, rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God hears the cries of Israel and has compassion on her. Pharaoh's daughter hears the cries of Moses. God hears the cries of Israel. Verse 10, Moses is saved through adoption into Pharaoh's house after coming up out of the water. And later on, Israel is saved through adoption at Sinai after coming up out of the water. What's the main idea? Moses walks the journey ahead of Israel. That's scene one. Let's take a look at scene two. Exodus chapter two, verse 11 to 15. And listen out for Israel. Listen out for Israel. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses looks on the burdens of his people. God looks on the burdens of his people. Moses overthrows the slave driver. God will overthrow the slave driver. One tyrant is buried in the sand. Another tyrant will be buried in the waters. Moses flees from Pharaoh to the wilderness. Israel will flee from Pharaoh to the wilderness. The people Moses is trying to save grumble against him and question his leadership the people God will save, grumble against him, and question his leadership. What's the main idea? Moses lives the exodus before Israel. We left the story in verse 15, and then he sat down by a well. Here's scene three. Scene three begins at that well. Exodus chapter 2, verse 16 through to 21. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, or Jethro, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? 
And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. This scene throws us back before it takes us forward. In Genesis, wells are places of deliverance through marriage. So you might remember the line of blessing is in danger of dying out with Isaac until Rebekah comes to the well, Genesis 24. And the line of blessing is in danger of dying out with Jacob until Rachel comes to the well, Genesis 29. So too with Moses in Exodus 2. The the line of blessing is in danger of dying out with Israel in slavery until Zipporah comes to the well. Exodus 2. Moses fights off the false shepherds, protects his bride, and draws water for her. Later, Moses will do precisely the same thing for God's bride, Israel. He will fight off another false shepherd, defend his people with the shepherd's staff, and draw water for them in the wilderness. What's the point? Moses is walking Israel's journey ahead of her. The theme of the shepherd continues into our final scene. This is scene four. Exodus 3, 1 to 6. Listen out for Israel. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses leads his sheep to Mount Horeb. There he encounters God in the fire. The place of God is holy, and Moses hides his face in fear. Later on, Moses will lead Israel to the very same mountain where they will encounter God in the fire, and Israel will hide their faces in fear because the place of God is holy. What's the point in this scene? The same point across all four scenes in these two chapters. Moses is Israel in miniature. He prefigures Israel. He goes before them. He represents them. He walks the journey on ahead of them, the journey they must walk. God is providentially shaping his life, and it has an exodus shape to it. God is preparing Israel for the exodus by leading Moses through the exodus ahead of them. In all things, Moses precedes and represents Israel. All things except one. Just turn with me if you have a Bible app on your phone or 
physical Bible with you, just turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. And just while you're going there, we're going to go to Exodus 32 verse 31. Just while you're going there, some context, these words follow straight after the golden calf incident. Uh, You remember Israel have just been redeemed from slavery, and how do they respond? They respond by rejecting the Lord as their God. So that's the golden calf incident, and these words come straight off the back of that incident. Listen to God's word. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses wanted to die for the people. But the Lord rejects his offer. In all things, Moses preceded Israel. He stood in for them in all things. All things except this one. The Lord would not let him die for the sin of the people. For the sin of Israel. That burden could only be carried by one man. A man who was himself sinless. A man who in himself had the capacity and only in himself had the capacity to bear the sins of the people. The true prophet, the true sin-bearing Moses, the lamb without defect, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Israel ever knew Moses, he had lived the exodus in his own life, repeatedly. Slavery, deliverance, wilderness, Freedom. Slavery, deliverance, wilderness, freedom. He lived that exodus before Israel. But his identification with the people, his mediation with God, could only ever be partial and incomplete. He couldn't finish the work because of his own sin. The Lord Jesus also lived the exodus in his life. He lived it to the full. He entered into the oppression of this sinful world. He resisted every temptation in the wilderness and in the rest of his life. He won deliverance in his perfect life and in his perfect death. He rose to eternal freedom in his resurrection. He lives and reigns in the promised land of his Father's eternal blessed presence. That's a lot. What bearing does it have on our lives? These massive truths, what difference do they make to us? Israel would follow after Moses and their lives would be shaped by the Exodus. We follow after Jesus and our lives will be shaped by his Exodus our lives will take on an exodus shape. Slavery, deliverance, wilderness, promised land. Slavery, slavery, deliverance, wilderness, promised land. In short, we are pilgrims. We are pilgrims. Last week we thought about the Christian life as a battle. Last week we were soldiers. This week, the Christian life is a journey across the wilderness, across the desert. We are pilgrims. 
And actually both are true. Both are different perspectives on the same thing. Both help us to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are pilgrims. We're on a journey. We were slaves to sin. We have been delivered by Christ. We are headed for the promised land. That means that in the here and now, we are walking in the desert. You want to locate yourself in the story? If you have been delivered by Christ, and if you're on route to the promised land, which you are if you have been delivered by Christ, that means right now you're in the desert. You're in the wilderness. This passage offers three key survival tips for desert travelers. Three survival tips for desert travelers. Look back to move forward. Head for home and follow the leader. First survival, first key to survival in the wilderness. Look back to move forward. So imagine you were locked in a prison in the Egyptian desert, uh, like Joseph, Moses' ancestor. You're locked in this desert prison. After years in that hole, you are finally given your freedom. You finally have freedom. Obvious question, what are you going to do with it? The one thing you are not going to do, the one thing you must avoid at all costs, is hanging around the prison. So you are not going to go on the weekend tour of the cells open to the public. You're going to pass on that. You are not going to get special permission to eat in the canteen, the prison canteen, and walk around the courtyard. You're going to walk towards freedom. Now imagine someone gave you that freedom. You were serving a life sentence, but after only five years, someone took your place to serve out your sentence on your behalf. What are you going to do with that gift? Well, you're not going to insult it by lingering under the prison windows, looking wistfully at the prison windows, daydreaming about solitary confinement. So it is with the prison of our sin. As pilgrims, we've been set free. Jesus took our place. He took our place to set us free. Why would you loiter around the prison? The first thing we need to do is move. Move away from the prison of our old life. And we have every incentive to move. We look back on that life, on how oppressive it was. How oppressive to us and to others. We don't want that anymore. We look back on what it cost Jesus to get us out. And we want to, we deeply want to honor that sacrifice. And so looking back helps us to move forward. This is not looking back in the Sodom and Gomorrah sense, the pillar of salt sense, the sense of craving and lusting after the joys of prison. This is looking back on the oppressive nature of what prison life was and on looking back on what it cost us, cost the Lord Jesus to set us free. And that motivates us to move forward. If sin is south, south, and freedom is north, and Jesus died to gave me my to give me my freedom, well I never want to head south again. Second key to wilderness survival head for home. 
to head for home, you need to know where home is. And by that, I don't mean directions. I don't mean ways or Google Maps. I mean, you need to be able to differentiate between that which is your home and that which isn't. When you are in the desert, there's often a mirage on the horizon. It's just heat rising off the sand. But to a thirsty, sun-baked, desperate wilderness traveler, it can look like an oasis. It can look like a refuge, a place of rest, a good place. You do not want to mistake the desert of this life for your home. Moses knew all about this. We can see it in the two names given to babies in our passage, right? So there are two naming ceremonies in our passage. We start with Moses. His own name is ambiguous. Moses, it's not clear to those who uh, understand ancient culture and ancient literature, it's not clear whether Moses is a Hebrew name or whether Moses is an Egyptian name. Could be either. And remember that in ancient culture, name and identity are very much bound up in each other. And so the ambiguity is the point. You'll remember from the, from the passage we just read a little bit earlier, even the daughters of Jethro think that an Egyptian has delivered them. An Egyptian delivered us, defended us, watered our flocks. Was Moses, this is the same Egyptian who's just killed an Egyptian and fled Egypt in the name of the Hebrews. So the question is pertinent. Was Moses Hebrew or was he an Egyptian? It took his own personal exodus to settle the question. Moses was named at the beginning of the passage. There's another naming at the end of the passage. So Exodus 2 verse 22 reads like this. Moses' wife gave birth to a son and Moses called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here Moses finally arrives at a clear sense of home and with home a clear sense of who he is, a clear sense of identity. He may have lived in Pharaoh's house, but he was just visiting. He was passing through. He was a foreigner in a foreign land. He was a sojourner. Home was elsewhere. Home was Canaan. Home was the promised land. Home was not Egypt. And so it is with us. This is how the writer to the Hebrews puts it in chapter 11. Let me read for us. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking home. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as one who sees him who is invisible. Because Moses finally knew where home was, he didn't settle in the palace. Imagine the life of the grandson of the most powerful man in the world. Just imagine that life. You're a young man in Pharaoh's palace, his son, his grandson. Just imagine the comforts and the pleasures and the carelessness. There are just no limits to your lifestyle. None. But Moses gave it all up. 
And not only did he give it up, he traded it for hardship and struggle. What he knew would be hardship and struggle. Why? He heard the call of another home. His true home. Some small part of him knew this palace is a prison. How are we going to keep walking when it is hard and hot and painful and we have enemies all around us and we can see an oasis? We can see an oasis just off the track. How are we going to stay the course and not be diverted? We have to know where home is. And we have to know that this desert land, the wilderness of this life, is not it. If we know where home is and we know how good home is, that it's a land flowing with milk and honey, we will not be waylaid by the false promises of the mirage. The fleeting pleasures of sin won't be enough to throw us off course, to divert us. Knowing where home is, knowing how good home is, means I won't stop and get stuck in this destructive relationship. Because I know that there is deepest intimacy waiting for me at home. I won't be seduced by the roadside taverns of sex or greed that promise me satisfaction because I know that the only true rest, soul rest, the kind of rest that quenches the thirst of my soul waits for me at home. I won't take the exits marked career or self because I know that it is only this narrow desert road of faithful, sacrificial service, only this road leads to true purpose. The kind I live out on the journey but will fully experience when I arrive home. So imagine you're on a road trip uh, with, your, with your wife. You can switch it by all means with your husband. Imagine you're on this road trip with your wife and you stop at a Formula One hotel for the night. Anyone stayed at a Formula One? All right, I've been there, don't be shy. Cheap, easy. We all know why we stayed at Formula One hotels. In the morning you get up to go. But your wife says to you, I don't want to go. Let's stay another night. And you say, what? And she says, look, they give us cups. And you say, yes, but they're plastic, and they haven't been washed in six months, and we have glasses, clean ones, at home. And she says, but look, they give us towels. And you say, yes, but that towel is the size and texture of a sheet of sandpaper. And we have big, beautiful towels that smell of stay soft at home. And she says, look, they've got a flush toilet. And you say, yes, but it's in the shower. We have a flush toilet at home and it has its own personal space. Now that kind of madness is something like what's going on when we get attached to this place. Our mistake 
is thinking that this is real and eternity is the mirage. If anything, it's the other way around. This life is the mirage and eternity is real. C.S. Lewis spoke about the foggy anesthetic of this life and how it will one day lift. It's all about where we invest our hope. Since Hebrews 11 specifically mentioned the treasures of Egypt, let me just say a few words on material things. Pilgrims travel light. It is hard. The sand is thick. It's hot. You only want to take the bare essentials. Uh, We went away for a weekend with some Christian friends who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty. When they arrived, I saw their vehicle, and there was just one question burning in my mind. Just one question. How did they fit it in? How did they fit it all in? And it really was a mystery to me. It was a puzzle I needed to solve, so I pondered it. And this is my hypothesis, right? So they backed the bucky. It's more like a small truck. Up to the house, opened the canopy, opened the front door of the house. Then the family runs around to the other side of the house, and it's one, two, three, and the house leans, and gravity helps out, and all the goods, the contents of the house roll down the stairs into the back of the truck, and then they run back around, and they use the electric winch to force that canopy closed, pop rivets, and then you stick the kids in through the window between the golf clubs and the bicycle, and you're off. Something like that. Now, it's a silly story, And as middle-class people, we can all relate to it, right? We can all relate to overpacking. I'm just poking fun at my friends with a silly story, but I'm trying to make a serious point. Pilgrims travel light. We are pilgrims. Don't weigh yourself down with stuff. And by stuff, I mean any attachment to this world. That can be your ambitions, your dreams, your projects, your pension, your career, your health, your family, your politics. What we all inevitably find is that as much as we want to, we just can't hold on to these things. They slip like desert sand through our fingers. Especially the material stuff. House, car, holiday house, garage full of toys. Fine to enjoy the things of this world, God's good world. But you can't take it with you. So why hoard? Why build barns and more barns to keep stuff that you can never really own? Because just like you, it all ends in dust. Ownership is a mirage. Property rights are a mirage. God alone owns anything. And the only thing that you can take with you into eternity is your love for him and your love for one another. The beauty of love is that it doesn't weigh anything. In fact, it makes you lighter. Don't get tangled up in attachment to the things of this world. Don't weigh yourselves down with stuff. If you know you're a pilgrim, 
if you know where home is and that home is good, you won't want to. Our problem, and this is all of us, is that we lose sight of all of this. We forget that we're pilgrims. We lose our way entirely. We set up camp in the mirage. And so look back to move forward, head for home. They're not enough. We need another key to survival if we're going to survive. And this one really is the foundation of the others. Follow the leader. Hebrews 12 comes straight after Hebrews 11, the passage we just read. And it is addressed to pilgrims like us. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As pilgrims, we follow our leader. Israel followed Moses. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important that we know what kind of leader he is if we are going to understand what it means to follow him. And this is where we finally come back to our initial question. Tubman and Kun, what do they have in common? Harriet Tubman did not make her way to freedom and then send a letter home and say and write to her friends and family at home, this is the route I took. She didn't do that. Same with Peter Kuhn. He didn't get to the surface, thank God, and hope that others had seen how he got out of the bus. Neither of them was simply an example or a pattern to follow. They didn't just show the way to freedom at great risk and cost to themselves. They were the way to freedom. And so it is with Jesus, only infinitely more so. He doesn't say, I will guide you on the way. He says, I am the way. Do you see the difference? He isn't just an example to follow. This is the massive but deadly mistake we make. We make it so often. We think that to be right with God and to get home, we follow Jesus' example. Now, even if that were possible, it's not enough. He has to open the way back to God in himself. Because apart from them, there is no way back. Right? He has to bear the sins of the people. The very thing even Moses could not do for Israel. We don't follow Jesus' pattern and then appear before God and say, look, here's my righteousness. I think you'll find it's a lot like Jesus. No, no. We appear before God. We point to Jesus, clothed in all of his righteousness. And we say the only thing we can say. Have mercy on me. I'm with him. Do you see the difference between that and trying to follow his example? 
When you think of Jesus, don't think of a map that says this way to home. In the spirit of Jesus Christ, you don't have a map. You have the pioneer. You have the one who actually forged the path. You have the way himself. In the spirit of Jesus Christ, you are going home. But only because home came to get you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to fetch us and to bring us home. And as we look back to our deliverance from the prison of our sin, as we look forward to the home we have with you, help us in the here and now to take just the next step on this journey and to walk with Jesus, not trusting in our own ability to follow him and to find the way, but trusting in the fact that he is the way and he will get us home. Amen. Friends, if I could just say one more thing uh, before you go. If, as I was speaking, perhaps you felt your own heart aching for home, this home that I've been referring to, and aching for a true sense of identity or purpose, longing just to get home, just to know who you are and to know what you exist for. If there's been any, any of that going on in your heart, can I plead, plead with you to come to Christianity Explored this evening? Because perhaps I haven't been entirely clear on how the Lord Jesus is involved in getting you home. But you will certainly have clarity if you come to Christianity Explored as Tian takes you through Mark's gospel and you encounter the Lord Jesus and who he is and how it is that he gets us home, you will have clarity on that. So please do come along uh, if you've felt any of what I've just described going on inside of you. And for the rest of us, why don't you invite someone? It's not too late. Why don't you invite someone to join you this evening to come to CE? What a gift to give to someone to show them their true home and how they can get there in the Lord Jesus Christ and how they don't have to strain and strive to do it in their own strength. There's no, there's no greater gift you can give someone. It's happening this evening at 5.30. So without preaching another sermon, that's CE. Please do come along. Friends, uh, if you would need some prayer, please stay behind. Uh, one of us on staff will come and pray with you. Uh, the QR codes, if you'd like to give to God's work here at Christchurch, they're on the pillars on your way out. Please remember your social distancing. Otherwise, God willing, we'll be back. We'll carry on in our adventures in Exodus next week. And uh, have a good week. Be good to see you again next week.